Welcome to this latest edition of Real Deal Podcast, The Wire Remixed, Season 3, Episode 12, Mission Accomplished. We are here, season finale of Season 3. Um, this episode was directed by Ernest Dickerson, uh, ranked by Vulture Knife all the time in terms of uh, Wire episodes. And the epigraph, of course, it was, we fight on that lie, one Slim Charles. Um, themes, I had McNulty and Avon, tired of fighting. And also, was it worth it? A uh, very interesting episode because you're following a, just, you're following a classic, a beyond, beyond classic, you're following a, an iconic episode episode 11 and there was nothing that happened in this particular episode that was of well that was surprising like we saw we knew these things that things that happened in episode 11 we knew were that we knew they were going to happen they were, they were uh, inevitable uh i guess i would compare this episode to i i guess this episode to me has aged well from a standpoint, not only from when it first came out, but also from the from watching it and then doing research on it, pre- uh, preparing for this podcast, because I realized that you know this episode is this, this was a tricky episode from the standpoint of you have to you have to prepare for season four. So this I could make a case that this was uh, season four. This is like half of season four was in this episode in terms of uh, some of the stuff that we saw. And that episode 11 was really the season finale uh, of season three. Very, very tricky for the writers to kind of get big uh, gauge, to kind of bridge that gap between ending season four and beginning, ending season three and beginning season four. But as usual, you know, the writers, you know, they did it to perfectly to a T. Um, opening scene, we go to Bunk, no team, they have the, the crime scene, which, uh, of course, at the uh, crime scene where Stringer has been had been shot and killed by Omar and uh, Muzon, and you see McNulty despondent over the fact that Stringer doesn't know that he was caught on the wire. Um, you kind of see Bunk, you know, control him, you know, uh, tap on the shoulder. Uh, you also see uh, Rawls, you know, asking questions about, you know, uh, you know, finding out. Uh, you know, telling uh, Bunk or telling the, the officers who were on the scene how much money was on uh, how much money was on that ambulance truck in regards to Andy Krawcheck. Uh, he had received a call from the mayor's office. We know uh, Krawcheck is a part of the mayor's team as well. I'm being on the ticket, and um, you see that uh, Bunk immediately kind of recognizes the, uh, the ammo that was uh, recognizes the shells from the shotgun, of course, from Omar, kind of, kind of, you know, you can see him, you can see his, uh, his wheels are spinning when he looks at some of those shell casings on the scene. Um, and then the final cut, of course, is the closing the bag of Stringer, of uh, Stringer Bell, which was, of course, would be the last time we, we see Stringer Bell in this series, of course. Um, you know, uh, you know, a very um, opening scene that made perfect sense. You know, they were going to follow up, follow up with, you know, with regards to what happened to Stringer Bell, uh, kind of closing the chapter on that book, uh, so to speak, uh, in terms of seeing him. 
but we're, of course we'll get more Stringer Bell in terms of you know his decision making and the collateral damage from that later on in, up in this episode. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, I view this scene as kind of like the beginning of like the final metamorphosis of of Jim Nolte. Um, you know, I really like that line that he had where he goes, um, you know, he he never like I had him. He's talking to Bunk. I had him, right. and he'll never know it. Yeah. Um, that that's kind of like that's 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 the beginning of this the final metamorphosis of McNulty, which will take place over over the course of this episode. Uh, we go to uh, Cuddy and Grace. They are discussing, you know, Cuddy's progress because of what he's done with the boxing. Uh, of course, she mentions that she never was into boxing, and Cuddy, you know, you know, makes one last pat, one last advance at Grace, hoping, you know, hey, why not? Why not shoot a shot? Of course, she, you know, she, you know, respectfully pushes back, and you know, kind of backs and backs off and says, you know, it was good seeing you, and, and keeps it moving. Uh, so Cuddy. Um, you know, uh, feeling good about himself, and you know, rightfully so. Uh, what were your thoughts on this? Uh, on this scene? Nope, don't disagree with anything he said. We get to Avon and Slim Charles. Um, so immediately, Avon, before Slim Charles even walks in the room, we see all the Barksdale soldiers gathering up and uh. You know, discussing what you know, what's transpired. We see Bodie saying, you know, back in the day, shit like this would have never happened, things like that, and then waiting for orders from Slim Charles. And we see Avon completely shut down Shamrock. He never, I, he just never has no regard for Shamrock whatsoever. Of course, do we know that Stringer's that Stringer's guy? And tells him basically, he tells him, you know, shut that fucking door. And then um, we see uh, Slim Charles come in the room. Say, hey, we're gonna bounce back on Marlo. He's gonna fall, and then Avon comes clean to Slim Charles. Basically, uh, uh, doesn't give him every detail, but basically says that, hey, this wasn't Marlo. Marlo couldn't have got this, uh, couldn't have got the stringer like that. He died because of some other shit. Slim Charles is, you know, surprised by that. Um, and you know, Avon says, hey, you know, I tried to fix it, uh, but I couldn't. He says, you know. Stringer was right about all this, you know, fuck this, fuck this beef, fuck this court, fuck these corners and, and, you know, fuck Marlowe. And basically Avon is in, is in, uh, similar to McNulty is despondent as well. Um, and questioning, you know, all, you know, this going to war or going to war in general. Um, and you hear some Charles basically say, look, you know, if it's a lie, then we fight on that lie, but we got to fight. He says, once you're in it, you're in it. And um, Avon doesn't respond. But uh, listen, Avon knows he, uh, Avon knows that Slim Charles, from that standpoint, is right, knowing the fact that he's a knowing that Avon is a general, more is a soldier himself. So he understands that, you know, <clears throat> that creed and, and what Slim Charles is saying. But again, Avon at this point uh, seemed to be just, you know, done fighting. Um, what what were your thoughts on this scene? A very tele, a very powerful scene from the standpoint that Avon came clean to Slim Charles. Yeah, Avon's going through it in this one. Um, 
Yeah, you can definitely you can definitely tell like he he's questioning like a lot of decisions and the choices and the actions, and it it shows um, when you talk about like the the overall trickiness of this episode. Um, the the big thing that needed to happen was that um, they show the consequences of the actions of of what happened in in last episode. Um, and a lot, you're right. In a lot of shows, that would have been like the season finale, and you know they would have saved all of the fallout for the next season. And for the wire, it's important that each of their seasons are contained. Um, the beginning, middle, and end. Um, and so uh, a big part of that end had to be what was going to be the emotional impact on um, on these characters after their emotional resolution, as well as like the actual resolutions that, that we saw. Um, and so this is, just like you said, McNulty, you're seeing the emotional impact on Avon Barksdale. Uh, we, go to back, we go back to Bunk and McNulty. Um, Bunk finds the cell chips from Stringer's phone. Uh, he also tells McNulty that we have a warrant for uh, the search for place. Um, we'll see, you know, we'll see how that plays out. That's definitely, just definitely that definitely was a setup scene for, for them going to, um, for them going to check out uh, Stringer's, um, Stringer's place. Um, Carcetti and Teresa DiGaschino, of course, they're going over Amsterdam and what his next move is going to be. Um, she's telling him to, um, or maybe we haven't gotten that far yet, where she uh, is telling him to um, save the best questions for uh, Tony Graves. So we haven't gotten that far yet, but they're basically going over what, what uh, he should do moving forward with all the news that he's received from Amsterdam. Um, what were your thoughts? Yep, yep, uh, set up. You go to Royce. So Royce is with his uh, chief of staff uh, and a couple other people. The, uh, the, the academic that we saw a couple a couple episodes ago that was absolutely trying to sell him on Amsterdam. And then Roy, Royce is in spin mode right now. Royce is trying to spin Amsterdam trying to convince himself that they, you know, shouldn't jump out on Amsterdam as a as a yet. The chief of staff has heard enough. He can he just walks out because you know he completely has been dead set against it, along with uh, Delegate Watkins, of course. And uh, you see, you know, you see Royce talking to the academic about what you know what can be done, and then Royce Royce is sounding desperate as he's trying to say, as you know. Maybe they're not giving him the best ideas or telling him things that he wants to hear. So he gets frustrated and he gets frustrated at, at one point in the scene. Um, what are your thoughts on Royce's actions uh, at this point? Yeah, I mean, this is definitely set up for later, but you can tell um, that this is the point where he doesn't really have a plan. Right. Yeah. And, the, you know, because and the people that, and the thing about it is the people that would help him with that plan are just like no so that's what this is this is what this is why he's why he's stuck like uh like the, his chief of staff when your chief of staff is like yo this is fucked up and you we can't do this then you basically had no friends in the room i mean that's that your chief of staff and you got delicate Watkins not messing with you from the standpoint uh of agreeing to you from uh in regards to amsterdam so 
we Royce at this point has no allies on this in terms of his in terms of his his own within his own his own team. Uh, he has the you know he's seeking advice from the academic who's just an academic. The academic says I'm not a politician. I'm an academic. So my point, my perspective, you know, is you know my perspective is not from a political, not coming uh, from a political angle here. Um, so we get to Kima and Freeman. They go back into detail. So they hear, they hear uh, on the wire that um, that was that was Marlowe's crew that uh, took out Stringer. Um, so that's that was that was the initial talk on the wire. Um, you know, we'll see how that uh, you know see how that will will play out. Any thoughts on that? Shut up. McNulty and Bunk. So McNulty and Bunk go to Stringer's place. Uh, before they walk in the door, McNulty receives a call from Coven, uh, saying that Coven saying Coven telling him that he has something for him. Um, McNulty looks through Stringer's place, which is obviously is a, a, a penthouse on the waterfront, basically basically a nice place. Samurai swords. You see the book. See a lot of books. Uh, the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Saw that book, and McNulty kind of like is taken back. Uh, at at the place and said and saying that Stringer, you know, Stringer lived here and you know, surprise. And then, you know, of course, at the end of the scene, says, you know, who, you know, who the fuck was I chasing? Um, I really wasn't a fan of the scene because, from a standpoint of, I don't particularly know what McNulty was expecting to see in Stringer's place. Like I, like Stringer is. He's a drug kingpin who's a multimillionaire. How, like, how do you think he was going to be living? I, I don't understand why. The, just, I know that we were on this whole narrative. We, we, we know he shifted his mindset and his attitude. We had to kind of play that up. But I, like, the idea that you know he's kind of taken back by how nice Stringer's place is and and the culture from that standpoint, I kind of didn't. That, that kind of was, yeah, I was like, I wasn't kind of impressed with with with, with that. With this particular scene, from that standpoint, um, what were your thoughts? Uh, so, the way that I would identify, like what was going on, I think. So, this is this is another part of Nolte's metamorphosis within this this episode. Um, and so, uh, at the very end of it, he says, "You know, who who the fuck was was I chasing?" Um, and yeah, I mean, like he's looking at different things that's in his apartment. But he's not actually talking about how his apartment looks. What he's talking about was his his um, idea of like what a criminal um, should be versus what Stringer actually um, turned out to be when looking at his place in particular versus how he himself, McNulty, is living his life. That's the, that's the important part of this. Um, and uh, and so like it's like it's like I'm chasing this guy. He's doing all these things that he sees in terms of like bettering himself and how he wants to live. And right. yet here I am supposedly thinking I'm better than this person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't I don't have anything that I necessarily like, consider of value. So, yeah, that's that, a great, that to me was what was going on. This no, thing. That's a great. That's an excellent point. And I also would add to that that he. For I, I think he almost, you know, I don't think it was an insult to Stringer. I think he almost, it was a respect um, 
I think he almost, from that standpoint, respected Stringer. Now, of course, mm, it's I, about I, his introspection of himself. This has nothing to do with Stringer. I, yeah, no, it was more about McNulty, but I still think that there was a like a respect from a standpoint. It's, it's not respect. It's not respect. That's the wrong word. So you think it was all about McNulty? No, I know it's all about McNulty. It's <laughs> not think. I know it's all about McNulty. But you know, it definitely. I mean, he definitely in that moment is questioning his own being. So with that 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 goes. Yeah, that definitely goes without saying that he's questioning himself. Uh, from where he's in terms of where in terms of how he's moving uh, with his career and life. Um, we go to Omar. Omar Musa Dante. Of course, um, the job is done. Uh, Omar goes to pick up Dante. Uh, from Muzon, who has him in this uh, in a hotel room, he uh, sees that Muzon has kind of you know knocked around Dante a little bit. Was a little bit annoyed by that. Muzon basically tells him, "What's done is done." Um, Dante says, "Hey, I took it as long as I could." Um, and then we see Muzon give Omar the evidence. Uh, the evidence, which of course was the gun that you know used to use to kill Stringer. Uh, the big thing to take away from the scene is the Dante Omar dynamic from the standpoint of Omar's previous boyfriend basically was killed and didn't give up Omar. Dante takes a couple, you know, punches to the face or whatever and gave up Omar. So that to me was the big thing that I took <laughs> I took from um took from this scene in regards to their relationship moving forward. Uh what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's spot on. Uh, we go to McNulty and Colvin. Um, Colvin uh, gives McNulty the address to Avon's uh, wartime lair. Uh, says, hey, this is the last bit of police work. It could be the last bit of uh, police work in a long and storied career. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, McNulty compliments uh, Avon, not Avon, compliments uh, Colvin on you know just being a hell of a tip, uh, a hell of a tip, and um, we see they see them exchange, not exchange, but see them and give the, give or give him that particular information. Uh, what were your thoughts on on this scene? Uh, shut up. So we go to Cuddy. Cuddy is at the boxing gym. He's with with his student, you know, with the kids. They're watching the Ali Patterson fight. Of course. You know, Ali, his mom, they were both champions at one point in their career and this their careers. And this fight, I, I was saying this fight was in the 60s. And uh, one of the kids, of course, questions Patterson's art because he was getting his ass whipped. And immediately Cuddy checks the kid and says, look, anybody that can step into that ring has a lot of heart, uh, has heart. You don't question your heart if you, if you can step into that ring. One of the kids goes and I think it was Justin and starts punching the bag um, as they're watching the fight. So we see Cuddy continue to live his best life from the standpoint of he doing what he wants to do and doing what he loves to do um, in regards to the boxing. Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, just kind of like drawing that parallel um, of like uh, struggle to um, – 
the struggle of the boxers to the struggle of the kids that are that are coming. So, as you said, they're setting things up with scenes like that. Uh, we go back to the detail with uh, the detail along with Perlman. They discuss uh, Stringer's uh, cell phone chips. Uh, McNulty tells Freeman about Colvin's tip in regards to uh, Avon's safe house. Uh, just, they decide that you know they should absolutely that they should raid Avon's safe house. Um, and you know McNulty says, "Hey, it won't it's not you know." It, you know, won't make up Stringer, but and, and and Freeman, but Freeman says, you know, it will do. Uh, so that that plan is uh, into uh, put that that they put that into uh, into motion. Uh, what were your, uh, what were your thoughts on on this uh, scene as they're discussing? That, like it begins with everybody, and then McNulty pulls. Now this is a big foreshadowing too, because everybody's involved in this as far as discussing this case and the fallout of the stringer getting murdered, what have you. And then when McNulty makes a key statement, he says, well, Freeman says, uh, careful man, when he shows him the chips and he says, uh, yes and no. McNulty says, uh, yes and no. And then he pulls uh, Freeman aside into a room and tells him about um, the fact that Avon, that stringer gave up Avon before, uh, you know, before he was killed, before he was murdered. Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, um, I, I think also everything you said, absolutely. Um, and I think also another important piece was um, the the record or the them finding out that Stringer had so many chips and that it actually didn't really matter about like how they connected the the network. They were probably never going to get him. So that made like this, this like the for real like only opportunity to get at Avon or get to higher higher levels of the organization. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they mentioned it in the scene because they, they mentioned it the fact that Avon that uh, Mignotti mentions the fact that he guessed that Avon would probably never come with, with wherever touch a cell phone. So he did mention that yeah. earlier in the scene that hey, this is the blade on the safe house was our only. Is, you know, is our only shot uh, so to your point. So that's you know, absolutely the true, absolutely true from that standpoint. Um, and again, pay attention to that McNulty pulling Freeman aside. That that is a big foreshadowing for the future. Uh, for the future with with those two, um, Marla and Perlman. Uh, you see um, Perlman watching TV. At the uh, with the detail, he sees that Marla is decides to run for city council council, and she watches as Daniels is there playing husband. We know that her that they're not together, but you know he's putting on he's you know putting on nice for you know public appearances' sake. And of course, Perlman is not happy about this as she watches them on 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 television. Um, as she watches those two on television, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, set up. Marlo, Chris, and Vincent um, at the rim shop. Vincent, of course, can't believe that you know somebody took out Stringer Bell. He's got. He's saying if it wasn't you, he can't believe that. He should, he's surprised from the standpoint of the fact that it wasn't Marlo, and he basically asked, you know, asked the question, if it wasn't Marlo, then who? And you know, Marlo's like, look, I, it doesn't matter who did it. Uh, I'm willing to take it. I'm willing to take the credit for it. And that is a big, 
That is a big piece of the uh, moving forward in terms of foreshadowing. That is a major and something I thought about, you know, um, in rewatching the scene, you know, because I, you know, initially you don't think much of this scene outside of the fact that, hey, you know, Marlo, Marlo's like, hey, I'll, you know, take it, add to my reputation. But that moving forward, that, and, and that is a major piece, the fact that Marlo is really willing to take credit for a murder that he didn't commit to boost his own reputation. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, like, I, yeah, I, I agree. It was, it was huge um, that that he was going to he was going to put that because that was going to bring all of the other stuff that uh, that happens. Um, and so, yeah, 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 I agree. Big move. Uh, we go back to Amsterdam. We see Carver and Johnny Johnny Weeks. Johnny asking for five dollars. Um, Carver, of course, says, you know, why would I give you five dollars in your current condition? And then Johnny pulls out, you know, a five dollar bill and you know, they move they move on from that standpoint. Also, we saw before that we saw officers discussing Amsterdam and discussing the fallout, uh, not the fallout, but discussing Amsterdam and discussing because at this point they have not the police haven't moved on Amsterdam yet. They're still waiting. Uh, for the call from up top, from the mayor's office, from the mayor's office, and what so they still haven't moved on it. But the cops are talking about, you know, when they do move on it, you know, who, you know, who's going to take the fall? And they mentioned Colvin, and to a lesser extent, without in name, they almost basically they look at Carver as well. They look, they look, they look Carver in the eye, but without mentioning his name, as without mentioning his name uh, as somebody that could possibly take the fall. Um, so that was the interesting part about that particular scene. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. Um, so we go to Kima. Kima, of course, is uh, despite the fact that she's back in the house with Cheryl, their relationship, of course, is you know basically is, is almost basically a done deal. Kima is you know is cheating with another girl. And she gets a phone call from Cheryl. She refuses to answer the phone and, uh, and refuses uh, to answer the phone. So uh, we, you know, that just shows you where they were at in terms of uh, their relationship, uh, in terms of their relationship. So Kima, Kima going, you know, a little McNulty uh, from that standpoint. Uh, any thoughts on that scene? Uh, no, shut up. You, you pretty much said everything. Uh, we go to McNulty and Bunk. They're at that normal, one of their normal, not one of the, the they're one of the normal drinking spots outside the bar. They're on the train tracks. Again, McNulty is despondent, continues to be despondent and depressed, uh, not drinking a lot. Um, you, have, you have Bunk kind of teasing him uh, about not, about not, about, you know, his lack of drinking and, Bunk then discovers, not discovers, but starts to talk about the murders, um, discusses the murders. And, and, and of course, he talks about, you know, I mentioned earlier uh, in, the, in this episode at the beginning when Bunk saw the shell casings, he kind of makes that connection with uh, possibly thinking that Omar could have been involved in both of these, uh, in, in both of these, uh, in, in those two, in both of those murders. Um McNulty again in, in that moment. Uh, he also McNulty also covers for Kima. As Cheryl calls him. Uh, that's going back to a, to an episode we did uh, the episode earlier earlier in the season when they both were in the hotel room and talking about those extraditions and, and, and that from that step from that standpoint. So he covers for her, covers for Cheryl, covers for Akima, 
And then he tells Bunk uh, he's tired and they and he he tells him, you know, let's go home. Um, and also they also discuss, you know, what the current standing of the city saying they're gonna cross path, they're gonna go past 300 murders. Uh, you know, Mar- Marlo, you know, Marlo being the heir apparent. You know, as he tells uh he tells Bunk that Marlo's the heir apparent. So this is mainly carrying on the theme of uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of shifting his uh, his mindset and uh, shifting his mindset. So it kind of played on on that, and also a big part, uh, and continuing to build on that Omar Bunk connection. Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, you named it. It's continuing that that McNulty kind of uh, dynamic and um, showing that that this is another shift in in his behavior. Um, normally he'll be drunker than Bunk, and and he's he's actually the more sober, reflective reflective one. We go to Freeman and Prez. Um, Freeman and Prez meet up uh, to discuss. We're discussing his case. Uh, Freeman says, you know, basically tries to talk him into fighting fighting the case, saying that you can fight it and and more and probably win. Prez, of course, you know, Prez is done. Um, he asked, you know, tells Freeman, um, I'm not sure I was supposed to be a cop. Not sure that I was supposed to be a cop. And Freeman responds, well, what were you, what were you supposed to be? And then that, of course, will, you know, lead us to our next part of where Prez's uh, narrative goes, with, you know, which we'll, you know, we'll see in future seasons uh, or in next season. But um, the key word, the key part of that was, what were you, what were you supposed to be in terms of that question by... Um, by one uh, Freeman. Uh, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like, uh, like you said, this, this is this is uh, this is a big, big time setup for for um, next season. But just kind of like, just like, I think a uh, uh, an overall reflection of this episode. If there was going to be an epigraph that I liked, it would it would have been this one right here because I think. That's what is asking all these characters in this final episode. What were you supposed to be? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and also, it, you know, Freeman has been, you know, kind of played on, you know, played on that mentor-mentee relationship that we see often, that we've seen often in this show. You know, Butchie Omar. Uh, you know, uh, Deacon and, you know, Deacon and uh, Colvin. And now, and certainly, you know, Prez respects Freeman a lot, somebody he can confide into. So it kind of played upon that uh, as well uh, with those two in terms of their relationship, in terms of their uh, relationship. Um, we go to the detail in Perlman. So McNulty tries to sell Daniels on raiding Avon. Um, he tells him that, you know, tells him that Stringer was the source of information. And uh, he convinces him, he, you know, convinces, he convinces Daniels, Daniel, and then Daniels is, goes to, uh, goes to uh, work on getting a, a warrant for the safe house. Daniels tells his people, you know, let's, let's stay on that safe house to see when Avon arrives and see, you know, who's there, who's not. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, this, on this particular scene and on, free, on, on McNulty? Uh, saying that Stringer was the source of uh, source of information. 
I mean, it's set up for later scenes, both of those. So we go back to Hampshire So Hampshire is still in full swing. And finally, the news, all the news reporters come down there, not just an individual reporter, a bunch of cameras come down, and it finally gets broadcast, uh, finally gets broadcast on television. And you see, you saw Carcetti and Gray being interviewed on site. Uh, the one reporter says he could have, he had, you know, kind of regrets not reporting it because he had it, he could have had it a week ago. So he got, so he gets burned from that standpoint. And now, you know, the, you know, the, uh, now the shit has hit the fan because now it's, it, it is on, on display uh, in terms of, uh, it's on, it's absolutely on display. And you see Royce and the chief of staff watching the coverage and Royce, you know, shaking his head and saying, basically saying, what was I thinking? Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yep. <laughs> the scene said it all. What was I thinking? So we go to Sidner, uh, Sidner and Kima, uh, sitting on Avon's safe house, watching counties who, counties who's coming in and who's coming out. Um, of course, that will set up for a uh, major scene uh, coming up in the, uh, later on in the uh, later on in the podcast. Um, Royce and Burrell. So Burrell comes in. Uh, to Royce's office, and initially she had thinking that all right, you know, Burrell is at a was at a major disadvantage, but he completely, completely uh, turns the tables on on Royce. Says basically, look, you know, you you know, I'll put it out there that you didn't that that I didn't have the necessary resources that I was you know was told to. Uh, you know, he almost, in a way, blackmailed, blackmailed somewhat, blackmails Royce and forces him to get his, uh, you know, give him his full term as commissioner. And in return, that in return, uh, Burrell says, I will take the hit. I will put as much as I as I can on, of course, Bundy Coven. Um, but I'm your mayor. I'm your commissioner for the full for the full term. Probably one of the smartest things Burrell has done ever in the show. Honest with you, um, uh, so that that was a clever move, and Burrell showed himself to be a a, a worthy politician, uh, more than worthy politician. Politician in terms of from that standpoint, uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, Burrell playing that game for real in this one. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, and, you know, he kind of took. Yeah, I, I, he he was playing the game. I I give I give Burrell credit on this one because he uh, he he walked in that office completely vulnerable and seemingly having no power and walked out with basically all the power. Um, yep. And forced and you know forced the mayor to basically you know give in to what you know uh, give in to give him uh, now now he's taking it. I mean he's going to take the. Commission, commission is going to take he Burrell's going to take a hit. But that hit is certainly worth a full term of being commissioner. So that was a, he was a big winner from uh, from that standpoint. Um, so we go to Burrell and Ross. Uh, Burrell gets to finally gets the call 
uh, to move on Amsterdam after negotiating that, you know, little deal with uh, Raw, not with Raw, with Mayor. So they moved on Amsterdam. So fine, he tells he tells Ross, you know, time to move on Amsterdam, and they move on Amsterdam and just and completely uh, shut it down. Um, as Rawls is playing some music from, um, I forgot the movie, I think it was Apocalypse Now. Um, and he says, over the top, and we see, you know, cops arresting, you know, little hoppers. We see, I don't know if you noticed, did you know, did you see when that the cop punched the girl in the face? Did you notice that? Uh, no, I didn't notice that particular. Yeah, yeah. One, well, yeah. I, I, it stood. It definitely stood out. This, it definitely stood out this particular time. Um, the girl, he, t- he, you know, he takes her, he takes her down to the corner, or to the, to the, um, to the curb, you know, and then, you know, she's faced up, face, you know, face forward. He punches the girl in the face. So I, that definitely stood out. But they, they, you know, they basically completely shut down Amsterdam and. Um, we see uh, just uh, a bunch of people, a bunch of drug dealers, and a bunch of uh, crackheads just scattering all over the place. As Bunny Coven's experiment now is uh, is up in ruins. Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yep, just uh, total total takedown. So we go to uh, Snoop and Fruit. So Snoop is telling a story uh, to a bunch of the mid-level dealers uh, that the fact that Chris killed Stringer and and the fact that Stringer was begging for his life, uh, begging for his life, saying how much money he was going to give Chris, uh, and says you know it was beyond pathetic or more than it was, it was saying it was pathetic. So he has them laughing about that, and then you see Slim Charles spots Marlowe at the rim shop. Uh, along with another uh, boxer soldier in the car, he spots Marlo uh, at the rim shop. Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Uh, set up. So we go back to Avon uh, at the wartime lair. Um, or no, Avon's at the not. The, he hasn't hit. The, he, he's not at the safe safe house yet. Avon's back at the uh, funeral parlor, um, and again, he's still. You know, basically despondent. Uh, he does allow Shamrock to walk in the room. Um, Shamrock saying, you know, hey, Slim, you know, says that Slim Charles has the eye on Marlo. And uh, at the rim shop, we waiting for you, you know, waiting for you. Um, and it says, Avon says, you know, reluctantly, hey, go ahead. I'm right behind you. And uh, pulls out a gun, uh, pulls the gun out the drawer. And, uh, you know, Avon is still Avon from that standpoint that, you know, even though he's uh, definitely with devastated by transpired with Stringer, he still still wants to, he still is willing to, still willing to kill Marlo, which he was willing to kill Marlo. So he pulls out his gun and walks out the, walks out the room as he heads to, uh, as he heads to, to make a next move. What were your thoughts on this thing? Yeah, this is uh, him getting ready, big, big time. Uh, kind of a big time setup, honestly. Yeah. So we go to Rawls um, and the chief of staff, uh, of course, are discussing, uh, you know, the chief of staff are, are discussing Amsterdam. Um, 
And uh, Rawls, one of the officers says that we have a, uh, you know, we have a dead body and we find out that that dead body, of course, is Johnny Weeks, who, you know, was just, who just went too hard at the end of the day. It was just, it was just went too hard and it could not, couldn't function without bubbles. Um, kind of a, a sad moment, to be honest, an underrated sad moment. I mean, we've been with this character for three seasons now, seen him with bubbles. We've seen him, you know, in the beginning of the series, you know, get the shit beat out of him by Bodie for, with the fake money. So, you know, Johnny had, Johnny had a share of moments on this show. And, uh, what were your initial thoughts on on seeing the end of this character arc uh, in regards to Johnny Weeks? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not that broken up at all about it. Um, yeah. Yep. He was there. He died as a character. Yeah, but, you know, it's also, you know, also speaks to, uh, again, what we, we spoke about in regards to where Bubbles is going. So I, I kind of, you know, kind of sp- speaking to that as well in terms of, of Bubbles, uh, the direction that Bubbles is headed with uh, with no Johnny. Um, Signer and the detail uh, continue to, uh, they Signer and the detail uh, finally arrive at Avon's safe house. They see Avon and a bunch of the soldiers go, in the, uh, go into the safe house and at this point that they are waiting for, uh, wait, just waiting on um, some more uh, some more officers and, and waiting on Daniels to make his move, to get the go-ahead to make the move. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, um, getting ready for the big, get uh, set up for the big raid. Colvin, so we go back to Colvin. Colvin loses his job, of course, uh, from John Hopkins um, and the guy who uh, hooked him up with the job told him specifically that it was Burrell that made the call uh, to get him uh, ousted. And uh, basically, so, you know, this is the collateral damage for, you know, for allowing for legalizing drugs. So there was going to be some collateral damage for the, from that standpoint. So this was, the, this was the beginning of that for COVID uh, in terms of, in terms of that. Uh, and certainly there was, certainly there was, more uh more to come uh what were your thoughts on that yeah this this is like you said collateral and then this is also direct consequences of his actions yeah yeah no question no question um the detail we get to the detail so they're still waiting outside the uh safe house avon safe house herc arrives along with another officer and um they complain initially about the fact that, you know, you guys, you know, you guys are the only persons, you know, basically like this, you were the only ones that this, that we get in terms of backup. So, but they hadn't heard, of course, on, on the Hampshire, Herc reminds them that, you know, Buddy Cove's, Buddy Cove's experiment blew up and you're lucky that we only, you're lucky that we only, that you just got us to. And um, of course he teases uh, McNulty and Kima saying, I, you know, I told you that Avon was out. Remember, Herc was the first cop that saw it. He did, yeah, he, he did. did. He did, he did. Oh. So, I fucking told you. And then, so he, yeah, so Herc, for once, Herc was right. He told him that Avon, that Avon was out when they thought that uh, he didn't know what he was talking about in that initial episode 
when uh, uh when Avon uh, got out or when Avon was uh, spotted. Um, so this, of course, is a setup for a a, a major uh, a major uh, scene, uh, probably the scene in the whole in this entire episode that's coming up. Um, we go to Carcetti and Teresa DiGaschino. Again, uh, Daschino, uh, DiGaschino, she's giving him a strategy in regards to the council meeting that's going to be coming up. Uh, she said specifically, leave, save the best questions for Tony Gray. He, need to, he needs to shine even more than you as he's typing his notes about Amsterdam, about Amsterdam and what have you. Um, what were your thoughts on that strategy, and what were your thoughts? Uh, what were your thoughts on that strategy that she was giving him? Yeah, I mean it's consistent with what what they've said this entire time. And the reason they need Tony Gray to shine is because they need Tony Gray to split the black votes. Yep, yep. So we get to the big scene, uh, Avon in the detail. So, um, Avon um, as a Avon's in his office. Um, Sapper, or Gerard, not Sapper. Gerard walks in. Gerard, of course, with the, with the dress, the one that uh, was with Cuddy and Sa- Cuddy, all those particular scenes earlier in the season. He tells them that Slim Charles has a drop on um, has a drop on Marlo, and all all of Marlo, the most of Marlo's muscle has rolled out. So at that point. Avon was like, okay, that's you know, doesn't say it, but you know, he has his gun, tucks his gun in, and is ready to go uh, take out Marlo. Then, then he is the police knocking on the door, and in this moment, you have now, you have a bunch of, you have about at least, I would say, anywhere from ten to fifteen guys that were in that wartime safe house, all armed, ready to go to battle with the police, and because one of one of his bodyguards, you know cocks the gun, the shotgun, Avon was like, no. Avon says, no, not the police. Um, kind of smiles, real like with a sly smile, realizes that, you know, it's over. He's been caught and says, uh, says, you know, let him in. And as they're coming in, <laughs> before they come in, he says, you know, uh, if you ask me, I, y'all bunch of ugly motherfuckers shouldn't be playing with shouldn't be playing with guns, shouldn't be using guns anyway, you know what I'm saying? So he kind of gets, gets that little last joke in. So they come in, um, Ray, you know, please come in. One of his one of his guys, which Stringer predicted back last episode, tries to take the rap for all the guns. Um, and this uh Daniel says, Hey, you got a law degree. Um, and then they, you know, str- you know, Avon is, you know. At this point, and I'll, I'll I'll dig into it, you know, once when I get done talking about the scene. But Avon, you know, Avon was ready to go. Avon was like, you know, hey, was was willing and able, with had no resistance, was seemingly ready to go uh, from that standpoint. Um, uh, so they, he says, uh, you only do two days, you know, only do two days anyway. The day you walk in, the day you walk in, and then the sapper finishes the rest. The day you come out, and McNulty. With one those one last dig at Avon saying, "Well, between those two days, you can uh, think think on this." And he shows him the paper with the source of information, and he finds out that uh, it was Stringer that uh, indeed ratted on him. So one last dig uh, from McNulty as they take on taking Avon and the rest of, uh, of of his muscle in that raid, and of course, 
Slim Charles, the phone was ringing the entire time. Slim Charles uh, lets the phone ring and then re- and sees, we see that Avon, we see that Marlo and Chris are leaving. So Slim Charles realizes that they missed their shot and tells his, tells his muscle to, uh, tells the driver to, uh, to, to roll out. Marlo really never, never, Marlo never knew how close he came to being taken out, which I found, which was kind of funny to me. Uh, just that it was within minutes of uh, this raid uh, that, that Marlo could have got, to, got taken out. Um, what were your thoughts? Big, big scene, uh, great scene. Um, what were your thoughts on, on this, on this scene? Yeah. Um, also, cause you were talking about Stringer being ready to, ready to go. And so like, um, I think like, like to, to that, to the point, like, it was just like when he saw that the paper that said, um, that his man had given him up, um, you know, it was just kind of like that final, like whatever fight that was going to be in him was probably gone at that moment. And, um, which meant it was probably time for some new blood to take over. Yeah. I, you know, I think I, I mean, I like how this scene was written because in a classic television scene would have been, I'm going out, blaze of glory. I'm going, you know, God, you never take me alive, and all this shit. And in real, in realistic terms, and and the beauty of this show is, it's like Avon's like, no, I like, I'm not going, like, I'm not getting into a gunfight with the police. I go, I'll go back to jail, and you know be the man in jail per se. And I'm not, this is not like, I'm not, I've been, you know, I, I think overall those guys know that it's only, it's only going to end one way. Either I'm going I'm to I'm go to jail or I'm going to end up dead. And you remember early in the season, Avon was like, I shit. He was, he said, shit, I didn't think I was going to last this long. When you start having a conversation with uh, Stringer about, you know, Marlowe in the corners and what have you, maybe having that back and forth. So Avon, Avon knew it was time. Avon, there's no two ways about it. Avon, even before he was arrested, even during this entire this entire episode, I thought Wood Harris was brilliant in this episode in, in, in playing that. You know, once Stringer was taken out, he, he like we said, it was a wrap for the bar sales. I, I, I get the sense that Avon thought, thought that in the back of his mind as well, that it was a wrap for the Barksdale's and it was only a matter of time before, you know, before he either got caught or even got, maybe even got killed by Marlowe per se. But either way, he, I think in Avon's mind that he, he thought it was, you know, he thought it was time. We go to um, Rawls, Colvin, and Burrell. So, uh, they they tell they tell Coben like you're gonna fall how we want you to fall, and you're not gonna go out on a major's pay. You're gonna go out on a lieutenant's pay, um, and basically everything that Coben thought that he was gonna get away with in beginning with Amsterdam is a complete opposite. Like he thought that hey, what can they do to me? They can't take away my pension. I'm going to go out. I got my 30, and all season long we heard, we heard Coben all, right. all this shit. Oh yeah, my 30, my 30. And you know, I'm going out. I go out. Mm-hmm. Go out on major's pay. I this John Hawkins job. So, so everything that Coben thought he had in in line, or thought that he had to fall back on, completely 
taken away from them in this episode. And they basically said, listen, which part of bend over do you not understand? <laughs> You're going to fall how we tell you to fall. And they would, you know, both Burrell and uh, Ross were very clear about that. And they basically said, hey, if you don't fall the way we want you to fall, then we'll take some of your people with you. And of course, that's they know they know how loyal Coven is to his people. So they know that's the last thing mm-hmm. that he wants. And they, they and, and give them a credit from that standpoint. They were smart from that strategically. They knew that, yeah, we know that he can, that he'll take all this. And we know that they they came in with the strategy. They they really they recognized that he was going he be he was he'd be willing to take all this, but he did not want other people to to take the fall for his actions. So they completely used that against there you him. Go. And uh, you know, and of course he has to he has to fall the way they want him to fall. Um, and you know, we see the again the. Uh, the fallout and the consequences consequences of his actions throughout the season. Uh, what were your thoughts on this season? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you named pretty much everything. The consequences, man. Significant. Uh, Marlo and Chris. So Marlo and Chris, Marlo, Chris tells Marlo Avon's been locked up along with most of his muscle. Of course, Marlo, you know, is happy to hear about that. Um, <laughs> And says, you know, good time to get back on these corners, get back on these corners, make that yep. money. And of course, this is this is the pre-transition. We'll see the official transition later on in this episode, but this is kind of like the pre-transition of power from one drug kingpin to another. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We go to Royce along with the drug czar. So the drug czar basically says, listen. Your funding is going to be cut uh, with this Amsterdam, behind this Amsterdam shit. Um, and Royce tries to say, hey, this was an independent, this Royce along with the chief of staff says, you know, this was a independent choice of a, of a out of, basically an out of control officer. So Royce is playing, is trying at this point is, he's going from spin control to damage control in regards to Amsterdam. So uh, found that interesting as he's discussing with the drug czar from Washington, from Washington D.C., who has came down, who has came down to uh, tell him that hey, we could take hundreds of millions of, of millions of dollars of funding with what has transpired with 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 this Amsterdam situation. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, this. I mean, it's just it's why uh, Royce's chief of staff was so frustrated this entire time because um, it didn't matter if. It ultimately didn't matter if Royce could have sold it to the people of Baltimore. The fact is the federal government would never stand for it. And so it was dead on arrival. There was no, there's no reason for him ever to wait at all, ever. And that's what was frustrating. And you, and you saw, you saw he was, he was straightening his tie, dry mouth. Yeah, he, he, he was, he was shook. Yeah, no, no. At this point, he's in. He's he's playing. He's on, not the defensive, but yeah. Again, he, this is damage control at, at this point, and um, so he, you know, he's in a position of vulnerability, uh, without question. Um, you have Cuddy and the boxers. So Cuddy loses all. Cuddy loses his boxers. One of the one of the kids says, uh, "Hey, Marlo got his package back up." And Cuddy is not back to square one, but somewhat back to square one in regards to not having any boxers at this point. 
so kind of a minor setback for Cuddy. Um, also, it, show you, it shows you in regards to Marlowe of how like Avon that really had taken him down a couple of notches. Like he goes from running the corners to like his package not even being really on the street like that. So it, so that I mean, in terms from that standpoint, um, the police had perfect timing in regards to taking out taking down Avon to uh, you know get uh, so Mar- allow Marlowe to uh, really you know, put his package back out there because that that so that kind of stood out to me when he says uh, uh, when the young the youngin says you know Marlowe got his package back. Um, what were your thoughts on this? Season? Yeah, I mean that also speaks to the you know the, the the game is back in action now, right? Like the reform that um, that uh, Coven tried to bring is has failed, and so um, yes. now everything's yeah. going to shift back to the way that it was, and the way that it was. The reason why you had all these youngins just running around was because there was there was only there was there was only one there was limited opportunity let's just say it just put it like that now with the game back to regular there's plenty of opportunity and so that's just one more way in which um as the game as they call it the game shifts back to normal that is going to impact everybody particularly kids pay attention Yeah, no, that, that was a big, definitely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just like you're saying, I mean, like we know this episode is a setup for next season. Yeah, yeah, that 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 was a big part, of, a part of that. And to your point, yeah, the game is back to normal because now no Amsterdam. You have, you know, you still you have transitioned from one drug kingpin to a to another, and um, yeah, from that standpoint, everybody's back on the corners now. Uh, so. Um, and we'll talk about that more in the montage uh, at, towards, the end the, towards the end of the episode. Um, Royce and Watkins. So Watkins, Delegate Watkins wants Burrell out. Uh, but of course, he doesn't know that Burrell, what Burrell pulled with uh, with Royce earlier in this episode. Burrell, Royce says, you know what? You know, Royce says, no, he's going to keep Burrell and going to cut Unetta Perkins loose and give Marla Daniels her shot. So... Royce kind of tried, Royce, in that moment, Royce is doing some politics and trying to keep Watkins somewhat happy because even though he knows Watkins can't stand Burrell, he does, he, he understands that Watkins is the mentor of Marla Daniel. So Royce was kind of, you know, Royce says, I have to, Royce, know, Royce knows he has to keep Burrell, but at the same time, he has, he has to toss Watkins a bone from that standpoint. By giving his mentor, his mentee, I should say, a shot, which he does. So, you know, from that standpoint, you know, smart move by Royce. Uh, from that standpoint, in regards to uh, cutting you know, Perkins loose, uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, politics. Uh, they really, they really showing all parts of it. Yeah, yeah. So, Comstat, we go to Comstat with Coven. Coven uh, again takes the hit. Takes all the embarrassment and gets it gets to a point to where uh, he loses his rank. Um, his lieutenant uh, Mello, of course, takes his position, and it got to a point to where it, you know he gets he gets so upset to where he repeats Stringer's last words in saying "Get on with it, motherfucker." So I wish I I found that you know that that you had those two 
the two reformers repeating the same, having the same last words uh, per se, as they are both, in essence, executed. Stringer, Stringer, literally, Stringer literally executed, and of course, um, Colvin's career has been executed. So, um, yeah. Oh, again, yeah, yeah. Burrell and Rawls, you know, coming at you at the same time, which is not never uh, can be painful when those two, when those two are on the, you know, on the same page coming at you. And um, we see Bunny Colvin. Uh, we see the last of. We see the last of Major Colvin. We'll see him, of course, in the future. But we see the last of Major Colvin. Uh, we'll see. Uh, yeah, tough, tough day at the office. This, this <laughs> yeah, is a tough one. Um, yeah, yeah. Now you, you, you nailed it right on the head. It was a, a public execution of his career. Um, hence the, hence the same, same language. Yeah, I have nothing to add. Uh, Bunk. So we see Bunk back at the Western. We see Squeak Bernard. And a, a couple, of, and everybody that was on the wire, that was caught up on that on that wire, freed themselves. Everybody that they heard on the wire, Shamrock, also, uh, you see Shamrock in the, in the interrogation room talking to Keeman. It looked like it looked like Shamrock was telling everything from the looks of it. it like he wasn't, he wasn't holding anything back. Uh, McNulty talks to Bodie, and Bodie gets off with the he uses the Amsterdam entrapment to get away, <laughs> which is. <laughs> good, good, good move by Bodie. Good, good for Bodie. Bodie was like, y'all, y'all let us, <laughs> y'all let us sell there. Y'all, y'all the ones that let us sell there. Like, you call me with a G pack. So Bodie, uh, Bodie doesn't have a law degree, but Bodie in that moment was a, uh, you know, used every resource, a no to mind, no chance to get himself out of a jam. Um, and says, uh, you know, even even McNulty was impressed with that standpoint, saying, uh, "Kids got a point." And Pearl, you can see how annoyed Pearlman was. Herman was so annoyed <laughs> with, that, with that, with that, with that. But uh, Bodie gets away as uh, everybody else in the Barksdale organization goes down. Bodie, Bodie and Slim Charles were amongst the last standing. Um, what were your thoughts on this scene? Uh, what was the, he said, uh, isn't it, isn't that some of that contraction? Contra yeah, contraction. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was it was an awesome, awesome scene. Um, yeah, yeah. I really, really, really enjoyed it, really appreciated it. Well acted. Very, very, very funny. And again, um, again, this is you know, it's, it's a call back to that, you know, to when they busted Bodie with the G Pack, uh, before uh McNulty and Kima knew and Sydney were there too knew of Amsterdam, uh, if you go back to that episode, I believe it was episode six or seven, um, when they, or maybe earlier in the season, uh, when they were headed to Amsterdam, uh, Bodie and a couple of his, uh, you know, a couple of Boxdell, um drug dealers. Um, so we go to Burrell and Daniels. So Burrell, uh, Burrell um, playing golf, feeling good about himself. He's, he has, he's a full-time commissioner now. So you know why not? Why not you know practice on the uh, on the uh, the old golf, the fake golf course? Let's Burrell, let's Daniels know that uh, he's been promoted to major, and also ask Burrell, ask Daniels if he could tie his case into the Bunny Colvin case, 
Daniel says he doesn't think so, but we'll see how that plays out uh, later on in this episode. Um, Burrell and Burrell tells him that his wife, you know, she wins. She she's gonna win regardless. So great, you know, as as bad as a, of a day it was for Coleman, great day in the office. Great great day in the office for one Burrell, Urban Burrell, and also Cedric Daniels. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What were your thoughts on this scene, on this exchange between Burrell and Daniels? A friendly exchange for one. Not. Not too yeah, I, the only thing that I would add is I just like the way that Daniels handled when he asked him, "Does this can? Is there any way we can tie it to your thing?" He's like, "I don't see how." Um, yeah, right. I I just like the way that he played that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Colbin and McNulty, uh, they meet at the Western outside the Western, drinking over a couple of beers. Um, they discuss the case in the future and the future also discuss Stringer Bell. McNulty, of course, says, uh, you know, I put Stringer's name on the paperwork to kind of, you know, tidy up things. And, you know, Colvin, of course, calls him out, basically says, you know, always take, are you, you know, you're always taking those shortcuts. And, you know, and McNulty says, you know, it looks like you took a, a few of your own. So they're kind of going back and forth a little bit. And uh, they throw the beer cans on top of the roof. And then we get to see, the thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, seemingly maybe hundreds, maybe hundreds, not thousands, but hundreds of beer cans that have been thrown on top of that rooftop. It was, I, I mean, endless amounts of beer cans thrown on top of that rooftop. Um, as we see these two characters um, discuss, uh, you know, their future and discuss, kind of, you know, wrap up with the, with the what were your thoughts on this exchange? Um, there were there were definitely a lot of beer cans on that roof. Uh, I could see where you would go thousands. Maybe yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot. There was a lot. Um <laughs> I can uh definitely um see where you know like both characters were coming from. So I like that, and I and I remember when uh, I remember when I was just like watching it and thinking about it. Just just this time, I was just like, it's very cool to see two flawed characters talk about like talk about like talk about their perspectives through their flaws um, and through like what they've done wrong instead of trying to like one up each other like on like a heroic idea ideal or something like that they're both like really talking about how they screwed up and like this, how flawed I am. They're like almost like one up in each other and their flaws. I thought that was very cool. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely were uh, uh, a number of flaws to one up each other on. Um, we go to Daniels and Perlman. They had dinner celebrating. Uh, they can finally go public with their relationship. Uh, Daniels tells, you know, tells her about, you know, that Marla, Marla is going to get, you know, She's going to get what she wants and we can go public. And of course they celebrate over some wine, uh, over some wine, some, you know, some wine. And, um, you know, they now, uh, you know, now don't have to hide their relationship or, or worry about, she doesn't have to worry about Daniel's playing husband for pub for appearances sake. So that part is, is, is over. Um, from that from that standpoint. Uh any thoughts on that scene? Uh, uh no, you named it. 
Uh, McNulty and B.D. Russell. Of course, B.D. Russell from season two. Uh, we saw her in the picture that he still has uh, in the detail and office in the details office. And that episode, of course, where you know when uh, Lester called him out for not having a life. Um, so he goes and meets with her, and he tells her that you know he finally closed uh, a chapter in his life, and not just a case. And mentions that you know he was like pouring into an empty cup. Was pouring into an empty cup for a, a lot of his life, and um, seemingly headed in a different direction, which he is. Says he says that you know he wants to meet her kids. And he made, he made one key statement. He says, things that make me right for this job make me wrong for everything else. And truer words have never been spoken by any other character on this show in regards to uh, McNulty. Uh, what were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I thought it was, like, the first, like, for real, like, change that I felt with McNulty, particularly, like, that end line of like nah not a drink let me come in and meet your kids like i actually felt like the shift of the character so we get to carcetti and burrell and ross uh at the council meeting and um burrell of course puts most of the blame on colvin and as as expected as as we knew he would be would do uh takes the hit they, they, and, and by the way, they do. They he, he did tie in the Daniels case with Hampton. <laughs> by the way, even regard, even despite the fact that Daniels Daniels said that he didn't see a connection, uh, that you know politics. You know, we know Bur- Burrell is a as a savvy politician, so he found a way to mix in uh, that case uh, with with uh, Colvin with Daniels's case, basically saying that we delayed. Uh, jumping out on Amsterdam because we didn't want to blow uh, Kate uh, Daniels's case, uh, so he, you know, used that as an excuse. Um, we see Carcetti finally take all the advice that Teresa DiGasquino has been giving him all season in regards to not going directly at Burrell and Rawls and speaking about the big picture in terms of what was wrong with the city. And he basically gave, you know, his mayor speech. I call it his mayor speech, you know. And um, everybody was impressed except Tony Gray, because he realizes at that moment that, that Carcetti is running for, is, is, is running for mayor. Uh, Delicate Watkins is impressed by the speech. And even uh, Teresa DiGassino seemed to give her, by her facial expressions, gave her, seemingly was, was improved, not improved, but impressed by uh by Carcetti's uh speech. So Carcetti finally learning the lessons of going uh of 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 taking it to that next level of politics uh, of, of he sound he sound like a mayor. He sounded like a a a mayor and not a angry councilman for like the first time in this uh in this season. Uh what were your thoughts? Yeah I mean yeah that was a perfect way to, to say it. Like that entire scene was about him finally um, getting his mayoral instincts in in, uh, in the in the right place, um, and he shifted from being an angry councilman, just like you said, to sounding mayoral. Uh, we go to Daniels and McNulty. So McNulty, as expect, uh, you know, McNulty leaves the major crimes unit, even though, and it, it says, even though 
Daniels was willing to give him another chance. Daniel says, hey, I, I got to trust my people. And if you're not going to be, and he cuts Daniels off in mid-sentence says, yeah, no, you're right. Um, you know, I, yep. I'm going in another direction. Uh, I'm going, you know, I think I'm going back to the Western. Sounds like Western sounds like home. And, um, you know, I found it interesting because, it, you know, it, it goes to show you, and we, we see this in sports all the time. If you produce, all is forgiven when you produce. And the bottom line is they close, like, they got this, they got Avon Barksdale's in jail. Daniels is a major. So Daniels is like, hey, man, yeah, sure, you can come back. You can come back. You can come back to the major crime, crime unit, you know. Despite just despite all the backstabbing and you know insubordination, you know what? You close this case, you can come back. So I found that to be the interesting part of of that uh, of that particular scene with those two. Uh, what were your thoughts? It's very interesting that you read the scene that way because I did not read that scene that way at all. Um, Daniels is essentially saying at the very beginning of it is that I would like to have, like, this was a heck of a case. I would like to ask you back as someone who could identify a case like this, but I have to be able to trust my people. So the way that I read it was he was giving McNulty an opportunity to like say sorry this is why i'm going to he was giving him an opportunity to try to convince him that he could be trusted mcnulty basically was saying nah thank you no 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 the words he literally said was thank you captain that's more than fair so like the more than fair that you need to trust your people and this is not something he was willing to even try to engage in and he already had made up his mind. He was going in a complete different direction anyway. So they could just save that conversation because there was no need to have it. No, if he wasn't coming back and captain couldn't have him back uh, or the major couldn't have him back without him being able to convince him that he could trust him, which neither McNulty could do. Yeah. I can see how you can read it that way. I, I think yeah. I still think it. it I, I said to you, I think if McNulty would have been like, "Yo," if McNulty would have said, would have to your point, would have said, "Hey, I apologize. I, I want to be a part of this unit. Uh, help, you know, this unit is special and so on, so on." He could have came back. All right, that's that's the way I took. But uh, would, would any version of McNulty ever do anything like hell that? Hell no! Hell no! So that's why that's no, why the scene. That's no, why the scene no. is great. No, but that's why the scene is. Yeah. Why, that's why, <sighs> That's why the scene is well written. It's great because to me, yeah. if, to me, fairy tale ending, the television fairy tale yeah. ending would have, would have been McNulty going back and saying, and then writing it back. So yes, that that that's why I like. That's why I love the scene. From that standpoint, that each no, character can end their relationship with the other with dignity. Yes, yeah, they walked away. Yes, they walked away with dignity, but knowing, knowing that. That they wasn't going, that they couldn't work together in, like in that capacity moving forward. So from that standpoint, so I, I like I, I so that's why I like the scene from that standpoint. That there was no, I, I wouldn't like if they would have had McNulty go back to the major crimes unit after all the shit he's done, and, and I'd be like, come on, man. then I'd be like, like what, like what are we talking about? Here? Like I, like, so I wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been as realistic to me, and I've been that that to me would have been like a tell, that's that's a, that's a television moment. That's that's a TV. That had been cliches television writing 
for McNulty to go back into that unit. Uh, the way he had, despite the way he had shitted on Daniels all throughout the course of this season, in particular. Uh, so I love how that that from that standpoint, how that that scene was uh, was was written, and 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 it would have and it would have went totally against this change that McNulty, this direction that that's this narrative and change that McNulty is headed. Part of being that unit was taken away, was hurting him from a standpoint where he couldn't protect himself from himself. So he needs to get out of that unit. It's not the unit's fault, it's him, of course, but he needed to be, he needed to be somewhere else from that standpoint in order to make this change believable. Um, Carcetti and Gray, um, so Gray, yeah, Gray recognized that Carcetti was running for mayor. Uh, and he tells, tells uh, Carcetti, says to Carcetti, seems like you're running for something. Uh, seems like you were you're running for something, and then Watkins, of course, walks up to Carcetti and says, uh, "You showed me something today." So, a major, certainly a major, uh, some foreshadowing moving forward to season four in regards to those three characters. Uh, we'll see plenty of those three characters in in in, in the next uh, season. Uh, Cuddy and Cuddy and Fruit. So, Cuddy, you know, needs boxes, and he recognizes that, you know. Everybody has returned back to the corner. Things have returned back to normal. Um, in regards to the drug trade, got you know, guys are on the corner, police are busting head, taking heads, doing that, and what have you. So Cuddy sees fruit, not fruit. Well, Cuddy sees Justin and the other young and the other one, um, the other kid. I forgot his name, but mainly this was Justin with the the, the bat with who you know, who had the uh, hat backwards with uh the Herc scene, that Justin. And Cuddy says, you know, I thought y'all was supposed to be in training. They eating potato chips, some Uts potato chips, by the way, which are, you ever had, you ever want some good chips, strongly recommend Uts, Uts potato chips. So he says, I thought y'all was supposed to be in training. And um, at that moment, of course, Fruit doesn't even know Cuddy's there. He walks out laughing and then recognizes Cuddy, sees Cuddy. So they have a moment and uh, a brief moment, uh, kind of like a, I don't want to call it a stare down, but a, you know, eye to eye contact. And um, Justin said, you know, um, Cuddy says, uh, we'll be there at 3.30 good. You know, three. he says, what time coach? What time you need us to be there? And Cuddy says, yeah, 3.30 will be good. And as we see Cuddy walk away, um, they pan the camera to uh, Fruit, who just looks embarrassed and looks, you know, looks ashamed, uh, knowing that, you know, Cuddy could have taken him out earlier in the season. Uh, so he takes his hat off, takes his head off and rubs his face um, and says, you know, tells them to get tells them to get back to work. Uh, very, very, very powerful scene. Just just well acted by Cuddy and the, whoever the guy who plays Fruit, both of those actors did a great job uh, in that moment. What were your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, very cool scene, very cool callback. Um, and uh, just kind of like the overall uh, dangers of of being in the game, even tangentially as um, Cuddy's trying to be, like in terms of like you know, supporting, supporting these boys with, with programs and opportunities, I mean, with, 
with programs outside of school, um, you know, that's going to bring you toe to toe with somebody you might have had a past with. Yep. Yeah. No, no question. No question about it. So we didn't get to the closing montage. Uh, Solomon Burke, Fast Train was the song. Uh, we see Gray and Carcetti campaigning. We see McNulty as a, you know, with the, with the, uh, as a beat officer, uh, walking the beat in the Western, smiling. Uh, we see Hamsterdam's wreckage. We see Cuddy back in the gym with, with some kids, Carver watching with approval, looking on. Uh, again, major foreshadowing, Carver, Cuddy in the gym with the kids. So that, that's something to watch out for, to look out for. Of course, Donette, who we hadn't, we hadn't seen in a while, crying as she's lost another, uh, yeah. another boyfriend, lover. Yeah, yeah, rough episode for Donette, too. Even <laughs> Rough episode for her. Uh, she see her crying um, as her kid is playing with his toys. We, show, she see, we see a picture of Stringer and D'Angelo. Um, and basically, I guess that, that was just absolutely, that just showed you know, the price of the game, that standpoint, uh, with that quick, that quick moment with Donette. Uh, Omar getting rid of the evidence with the, the Biggie shirt on. Um, of course, that character, of course, Michael K. Williams is from Brooklyn, by the way. Um, Bodie all alone as Marlowe controls the corners. Bodie is kind of, kind of foreshadowing for Bodie, kind of like a man, you know, without an organization on his own. So that, that definitely was definitely remember that for next season as he puts his hood, hoodie on. Uh, we see the detail take down the board and clear out, clear out the office. We see with Stanfield and Barksdale boxes. Um, Avon in court, as we see Avon in court, he looks over to Brianna, gives a brief, you know, smiles as he has a, you know, as he has a brief little, you know, semi smile. Uh, certainly, he was happy to see her, but then he turns around and she's gone, and then he sees Marlo. And Chris, as they walk in, as they come into court, Marlo gives the Warriors nod, a nod of respect. Avon acknowledges that that you know sees that that's Marlo, and there, there, the crown has been officially passed from uh, Avon to Marlo. Uh, very uh, great montage, and they they do they do a tremendous job with these these end of the season montages, but. I, I frankly, this is this was this one is uh, you know now I'll say it now this one is my favorite out of all the five seasons in regards to the montages with the music and how they wrapped up the uh, wrapped up the season. What were your thoughts on on this montage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I agree with you. They they all do the the montages are very cool at the at the end of every season. I'm definitely not willing to call. Three, my favorite. Yeah, I got to see the other two. I can't remember that well between all five montages. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the Wire does a great job of summing up where they are as well as tipping their hat to knowing what's going on in the future. All right, a little bit of a behind the scenes on The Wire um, at this uh, at this point in time, um, the the other thing and the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is what makes this series so special and so unique. Is at this point in time, 
there's not like an overarching guarantee for X amount of seasons. Um, quite literally, season three could be the end of the series. They actually fought really, really hard to get a season three because they wanted to wrap up the Stringer and Avon story. Like they needed to wrap that up. But if season three was going to be it, it would have been that would have been fine with them because that that could have been the the end of the show. And so um, I say that to say the degree of difficulty here is you're tipping your hat and nodding. Um, you're, you're ending a series potentially and tipping your hat and nodding to a season that might not ultimately come. So the degree of difficulty is very high. Yeah, to your point. So this was clearly, this episode, this season was clearly written as, even though Simon in mind, even though Simon had five seasons in mind, this, the way, to your point, this series, this season was clearly written as pot, as more, as possibly being the last season. There's no question about well, it. Well, I mean, like, at the time, like right. the Sopranos was the Raisins juggernaut and was the one that was getting all of the the attention. The Wire, for as good as as we all know it is, and how culturally significant it's become over the years, at the time was just a lowly rated show yes. that critics really loved. Yes, um, and so that did not guarantee another season. That's no. my that's the big no. point. That no. season four was not guaranteed. That was not a thing that was like definitive. So, um, whereas like uh, Sopranos at the time, let's say, you know, um, is getting begged for more and more seasons, um, they could write with kind of like the advanced knowledge of all of this is actually going to happen. Right. The Wire didn't have that, I mean, didn't have the luxury of the knowledge of of the show actually happened but to your point in terms of like how the seasons were mapped out and what david simon the overarching vision had they continued on with their vision but a big part of their vision was that season like that arc of stringer and avon had to be complete yeah they, they had want to that, complete that arc. yeah they want they they, they, no, badly they had to up. yeah they that had to get that you to your point that had to get wrapped up and they they, they because they like they, they didn't, I'm not gonna say they um sacrificed season two. What they did, so they going back to season two, they put that on they put that on the shelf so that they, so that they stayed Stringer Avon uh, art could stretch out the three seasons, and it worked out perfectly with going towards the docks, and which you know, allowed that allowed them to you know to kind of culminate with the Avon Stringer in season two, along with D'Angelo as well, even though he died in season two. In, in regards to what transpired in season three, so um, they took a risk in season two. They yes. did not do season two to elongate for there to be a season three arc in there. They took a risk on season two. That's why season two will always be one of my favorites. But that's why it always stand out um, is because the natural progression of the sh- the show and the way it was hitting would have been. What season three was is to be season two. So they took a huge, huge risk with season two in the way that format and the story that they they wanted they wanted to tell. Um, but with that being said, as risky, I mean, as much as I applaud them for that risk, ratings were not great, and so then a potential season three had to be very, very much discussed, and a very big part of that 
discussion was that Stringer and Avon with Harris and um and uh oh, just Elba. Oh, no, just, just Elba were returning and they were returning back to the streets and all that. So that was a part of the that was a part of the negotiating process, but also another very big part of the process was that they had to finish out that arc. Like that, like the if it would have been unsettling and unsatisfying for the creators to end if the series would have gotten canceled at the end of season two. That would have been unsettling and unsatisfying because that's not that was not an end point. They were not done with the characters yet. By season with season three, they designed it so that the all the the big arcs were done and and tied like tied up. All the all of the characters we had met and had grown like they were at an end point. They could be at potential endpoints in their journeys, if not definitive endpoints. In the case of Stringer Bell in their in their journey and so if hbo said now nah, we're not renewing y'all for another season the creators would have been completely satisfied with where the series would have ended at the end of season three yeah yeah no you know yeah no question about it they um which it was this goes back to my original point as far as how challenging this episode was uh and how tricky this episode was it, there is this, this episode you know, it's ranked, it's, ranked, it's ranked in the top 10, so it, it does get its proper respect. And, I, and I, it absolutely is a top 10 episode. But this episode is probably better. It's probably better than what we realized, considering, all things considering, you know, considering that it was following episode, following episode 11, and considering that everything that had to, that had all the payoffs and everything that had to go into to finalizing um uh, telling this uh the story arc so um yeah very 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 uh difficult episode challenging episode to uh to uh to write from that from from all the reasons you uh just mentioned um the last scene of the last scene um bubbles and colvin so we see uh bubbles with a, a another a young protege and i believe it was that same young that same young boy that that he met in I, I think i think it was um, Anyway, he's helping Bubbles collect uh, scrap metal. Uh, of course, Bubbles is always looking for a hustle, and they run into Colvin, um, and they have they have a, a brief conversation. Bubbles starts talking about starts talking about the memories of Amsterdam and what was going on, and Colvin kind of Colvin says uh, it's a good thing. So, and someone in a, in a question form says it's a good thing, and Bubbles. You know, Bubbles doesn't give a definitive answer to that question, but he did. But, but, but the important part is, Bubbles says, "You know what? I mean, I'm paraphrasing this. You know, things have gone things have gone back to normal." So that that was the big piece of that uh, of that conversation with those that brief conversation. Uh, as Bubbles says that you know things have gone back to normal in regards to you know toppers on the corners, police, and what have you. Um, what are your thoughts as this scene wrapped up the uh, the season with Bubbles and COVID? It's a matter of perspective. Yeah. Um, Bubbles was talking about it from the Fiend's perspective. Um, you know, he's like, nobody, you know, the police was letting you be, the hoppers wasn't banging on you. You, know, you just copy a thing and be done with the night. So life is feeling really good for him other people's perspective not so not so much and now um 
the overarching point, of course, is what what did what was all what did all of that accomplish? And the ultimate answer is in in nothing. They're right back at where one bubbles is right back as where he started, and Coven is worse off now than where where he would have been if he just would have played out the rest of rest of time and everything to bubbles points everything else is back to normal so what was what ultimately was the point right like what what was the point of what was tried um and so that's the question that will be answered at another time yeah yeah definitely about perspective and getting back to one of our original themes you know was it worth it and a number of characters had to answer you know a number of characters you know basically asking themselves that question, you know, it could we could it could be whether it's Stringer, whether it's McNulty, Avon, uh Colvin, you know, uh Cuddy, you know, Carchetti. So a number a number of characters we could pose that question to. Uh was it, you know, was it worth it? Um and getting in some of the things that I mentioned, um, yeah, I said was it worth it? Also, you know, in regards to Avon and McNulty, very, you know, similar characters in regards to what their moves were throughout the course of this episode. Like, they, these are two guys, again, we focused this season on reform, reform, reform. A bunch of reformers, a number of performers, a couple, a few reformers. But I found it interesting that this episode was kind of, you know, dictated by two guys who were coming into came into the season as guys who seemingly were not trying to were 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 part of these you know status quo like they were going they were going to be McNulty's going to be McNulty Avine is going to be Avine and in the at the end of the day those two those you know they find out that you know what they do or how they're living you know it's not it's just not wasn't worth. It's not working anymore. Now, Avon finds out he's going to he's end up. It cost him a trip. You know, going to jail. I mean, Nolte, of course, can go about it. He can go about his business um, per se. So I did. I found it. You know, found it to be interesting that this episode was you know kind of dictated by those two seemingly those two guys who were clearly not you know who were clearly not uh, reforming um, who were clearly not reforming. Uh, performers uh, per se and also in, in regards to the season overall in regards to the season overall i think you know it, and i want to get your thoughts on this as well did it just you know did the show just answer the question you know hey when it comes to this you can be you, you know the system the system or the game will not stand before him but there is possibility certainly for self-reformation reformation uh what, what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, I think if you look at what the show's argument is, is the show's argument is that um, is that reforming reforming big, huge systems uh, in isolation will never ever be a successful strategy. You just can't do it. Um, but what you can do in isolation is you can reform yourself and look at your own actions and how your actions impact the the larger system. And if enough people 
take that time to reflect and change their actions, then things don't happen the way that they continue to happen. That's actually how you get um, different pieces of the system to, to change. And the ones in this season that were outright failures were the ones that were built on lies. And you have to come at it from a place of truth and telling the truth. Uh, no question about it. Um, so we'll get to, we go to episode MVPs and Chardines and we'll get to season MVPs and Chardines. First episode, who's your episode MVP? Yeah, episode MVP will be Avon and the Chardine will be um, McNulty and uh, Amy Ryan, um, B. B. Russell. Interesting. Yeah. Why, so, man, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. So why, why uh, Avon MVP of the episode? Avon MVP of the episode because we just got to watch him go through so many emotions. Like Stringer got the most final consequence, but uh, Avon uh, Wood Harris has to play through and the Avon character has to play through the emotional consequence of of his actions and he had to do it through the entire episode and then get through on the other side of it by the end of the episode convincingly. Yeah. No, no, I'll try. So yeah, I, I, I definitely got, you know, some awards for Wood Harrison's, uh, you know, performance. Um, and my MVP was, I had, there's a tough one. It's between Daniels and Burrell. I said Daniels. I had Daniels. I could have went. I could easily win but Burrell, but I had Daniels as MVP um, of this episode. Uh, I thought Daniels, you know, just him navigating uh, as a leader and just every maybe you know just all his all of it paying off with how he um, led the MCU and how he navigated that situation, you know, with his wife, with Perlman. Um, you can make a case. It, 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 you can make a case is more seasonal than even ep- episodic. But uh, I had I had Daniels as my uh, episode MVP. Avon was the Chardine. Uh, was my Chardine. Who was your Chardine? Oh, you yes, yes, you said you said uh, McNulty and B and Russell. Yeah, Avon was my Chardine. Yep. I, thought, I thought Wood Harris was phenomenal in this episode. Um, just going through that an emotion of being a, a, a kind of a, a aging gunfighter who, you know, doesn't have any bullets left in the, in the, doesn't have any bullets left in the gun and who is ready for, uh, you know, the next phase of his life, whether it had been death or whether it had been, you know, time in jail, which he's end up going, which he end up uh, going to uh, jail. Oh, speaking, that, that brings me to a question I forgot. So, Getting back to that scene where Avon gets busted, they say Stringer, not Stringer, Daniel says, McNulty says, you'll do the rest of your term, which is five, we know five years, the five years off the seven year, his seven year original bit. He only did two years ago. He said, you'll do the rest of your term. Daniel says, we'll get you, we'll hope to get, we'll seek, we'll seek to get you 25 to life on conspiracy to murder. Who? Now, conspiracy to murder. Now, do you think that was conspiracy to kill D'Angelo or Stringer? Who do you think you, they were talking about in that, that moment? Uh, I have to go back and watch, real honestly. I, I never 
consider. Yeah, I have to go back and watch. Um, season uh, MVP season charting season charting. Whoa! Um, season MVP is um, some some combination of Bell Avon. I mean, this is their this is their season. Yeah. So they're both MVPs. There's no way you can split them up. Yeah. Bell Avon. Uh, what about your season, Chardine? The season, Chardine, um, would probably be McNulty, if I'm being honest, because he goes oh, through so much change throughout the season. Interesting. Okay. Um. Yeah, season MVP, I had to, you know, Avon Stringer, the fall, fall of the Barksdales, the, the whole, I think you, I think you, I think you expressed it perfectly, articulated perfectly in the last episode with the, the whole, the, the Greek tragedy and the tragedy of the Barksdales. That's, that, that to me is the MVP of the season, the Barksdales tragedy, um, to me, which, you know, again, was driven, was driven by Avon and uh, Stringer. Uh, season Chardine, I had Cuddy. Cuddy. I had Cuddy. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 like Cuddy from episode one until, you know, until this final, you know, until, you know, even, even this particular episode, uh, I thought he was in a number of just number of powerful scenes. We, you know, two of those, of course, with Avon and just his whole transformation, uh, you know, as a, also as a reformer uh, as well. Um, one last one before I let you go. What do you? What was the best scene to you in the, this season? The best scene is without a doubt um, the the last episode um, when uh, Stringer uh, when that gu- when that gun blast goes off and Stringer realizes, uh oh, it's about to go down. And that that entire sequence, there there's nothing like it. Oh, so as when Omar shoots his bodyguard in that whole that whole sequence, that, that sequence. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know the scene that stands out. I, I, that when I was thinking about this, to me, now I gotta go back. It goes back to early in the season. I love the Deacon and uh, Colvin scene about the the, the sweeping sweeping uh, leaves on a windy day. That scene that that stood out to me. that. That scene stood out to me. That whole regret, looking back on your your legacy, that 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 to me, I, that was my that was to me the best scene of, of the season. Um, so I think uh, overall, I, again, this season is this was actually a great season, um, without question, a classic season. I think that as the years have gone by, the season even ages even better. That much better as you as you rewatch it, and I definitely feel like even though I, I you know I think I I, nah, I think I know that season four is the is the best season. I think as far as story arc, I think season three had the best story arc of all the seasons. To be honest with you, um, so great season. Um, definitely looking forward. And we, and, you know, I, I, to go. This goes without saying as a educator. Uh, and a fan of, a fan of the show looking forward 
to um, to the one season four. Uh, any any last thoughts about season three? Not no. Yeah, I mean, you put you put a button on it. Let's go season four. Yeah, no season. Yeah, season four. You know, it's it's, it's going to be is special to see at least. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this latest edition of the Real Deal Podcast, the Wire Remix. As always, thanks to one Robert Sapp. Uh, all right, sir. You have a good one. Happy holidays to you. All right, same to you, and I'll see you next time. That's going to wrap it up for this latest edition of the Real Deal Podcast. We are made it through three seasons. Um, looking forward to season four. As always, I, and definitely I will have this episode up before the end of the night. Um, before the end of the night, um, as always, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, uh, www.youtube.com slash Real Deal Podcast. I will see you next time on this latest edition of the Real Deal Podcast. I'm out.